0: You can read Psalm 49 all 20 verses of the chapter. If you read along with me. Hear this. All ye people give ear, all ye inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak of wisdom, and the meditation of my heart shall be of understanding. I will incline my ear to hear a parable. I will open my dark saying upon the harp. Wherefore, should I fear in the days of evil, when the iniquity of my heels shall compass about me? They that trust in their wealth and boast themselves in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their soul is precious, and it seetheth, seetheth forever." that he should still live forever and not see corruption. For he that seeth that wise men die, likewise the fool and the brutish person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inward thought is that their houses shall continue forever and their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man being in honor abideth not. He is like the beasts that perish. This their way is their folly, yet their posterity approve their sayings, Selah. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them, and the upright shall have dominion over them in the morning, and their beauty shall consume in the grave from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave, for he shall, he shall receive me, Selah. Be not thou afraid when one is made rich. When the glory of his house is increased, for when he dieth, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lived, he blessed his soul, and men will praise thee when thou doest well to thyself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. Man that is in honor and understandeth not is like the beast that perish. May I take your seats?
1: Good morning. I'm going to ask if you would to join me in a word of prayer before we study Psalm 49 this morning. Father, we ask that you would grant us ears to hear, incline our hearts toward wisdom and understanding this morning. Open our eyes to see this life as you see it. Father, we ask that you would teach us to live with a fear of you and to keep us, Lord, from grasping after the wind remind us always that this life is but a vapor and death is imminent and therefore our lives here are temporary. And in that light, Lord, help us to value the things that you value and to prioritize the things that you prioritize. And we thank you this morning in light of Psalm 49. We thank you ahead of time for redeeming our souls. Amen. You know, I was reminded this morning... In fact, I was reminded all week of this, studying this text. You've probably heard the slogan, the saying, money talks. Right? You've probably heard that. But it's sort of an interesting phrase because here I am holding a dollar bill. And and it really doesn't talk. Okay, it can't. Can't say a word. So literally, that is a false statement. It doesn't talk. Figuratively speaking, in many ways in our society, it does talk, doesn't it? It does. In what way? You see, this dollar bill, it, it serves as a primary motivator for why someone would take a certain action. If, for example, I, I, I was to say that we were going to have a contest this morning and, and it involved an opportunity to uh, to win some money. And see, just in saying that, some of your eyes light up. I had your attention there. just for Just, just, just for a split second. And the contest, let's say, was going to be the person who who took the best sermon notes this morning, we just pool them all afterwards and we would take a look at them and, and there would be a $10 bill given to the one who had the best sermon notes. Now, some of you here already take notes. Others of you don't. Some that do take notes, perhaps do so begrudgingly because your parents maybe encourage you to do so. Those that don't take notes, Have a tendency perhaps to rationalize why they can't or won't take notes? I wonder though, if you knew there was going to be some kind of contest, would you choose to take notes? What if the reward was $50? Is there a point in time when money talks to you? Is there a point in time? Proverbs 23 verse five says, will you set your eyes on things which is not. For riches certainly make themselves what? Wings. They fly away like an eagle toward heaven. For those that had their hopes up for just a moment that about this contest, I want to assure you there is no contest this morning on note taking. However, I hope that the illustration not only provides a segue into the text of Psalm 49, but that it causes you to at least ask the question, what is my motivation for taking notes? How much hold does money have on me? Bigger still, why am I here this morning? Why do I have this Bible opened up before me? And I hope that you have your Bible opened up before you. Or if you don't have a Bible with you, perhaps someone next to you has one and you can look off of their Bible. Do I really believe this Bible to be true? And if so, what are the implications of obeying what it says? What are the downsides of disobeying it? Is my time before the word? Another opportunity to draw near to God and my relationship that I have with him through Jesus Christ. Or do I just simply see this time, this time on the clock, it's 11.21, 11.22, do I sim- 10.22. Do I simply just look at the clock and go, oh, well, he, he's, he's preaching Psalm 49 and, and this is one part of the service that gets me closer to lunchtime. I'm saying it. Some of you think it though. Or is this a time for you, for all of us, to hear from the Lord and be taught by Him with the intent that I obey what I hear? There's a call, church. I want you to see this. There's a call in the text. If you look at the text, there's a call, a welcome. Do you see it right at the beginning? The psalmist is calling the listener... In on something akin to what would be a, a proverb, a, a riddle. Like the prelude in music. So these first four verses serve as a beginning point for the remainder of the psalm. So let's look at the first four verses. Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. Both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak Wisdom and the meditation of my heart shall give understanding. You might underline wisdom and understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb, I will disclose my dark saying or my riddle on the harp. Hear this and give ear. Essentially, the same thing. We've got to remember that when we open up and we study together the Psalms, we are reading poetry right and so a lot of times in poetry a poet will write two lines that are different not using the same words but they are communicating the same idea hear this give ear they're communicating the same idea it's a call to listen who who is this for who's this psalm for Well, it says all peoples and all inhabitants of the world. Does that include you? Yes, it does. So this psalm is relevant for you, for me, all of us gathered here today. He says, my mouth shall speak wisdom. Wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall give understanding. It's important for us to understand something. That the psalmist has thought, it seems, for some time about what he's about to say. There's great value in what follows. When you read the words of Psalm 49, do you place value on them? Now, you may not know the psalmist. You may know very little about these sons of Korah. But should that diminish the value of his words? Are not these words a part of the bigger word of God? What then do you think about God's word? See, the psalmist has submitted a word for all to hear. The call goes out to all inhabitants of the world. Unlike the clever uh, marketing, marketing, the, the specialization today in our marketing... You know, you might get a mailer in the mailbox and it's and sometimes you may wonder how did I get on this list? Well, you probably were one of several hundred, several thousand people who share something in common because most marketing they're targeting a specific niche. The psalmist, I love this about the psalmist. He's speaking to everyone. All people No specialization here. He has something to say to all peoples. And so the question this morning is, are we going to be listening to what he has to say? Will you listen to what he has to say because I said listen to what he has to say? Or will you listen because his word, this word of God, flows out of the repository of his revelation to you, to me? We ought to be listening every time this word gets opened up. No matter what your economic status, low, high, rich, poor, this word right here, Psalm 49, is intended to be heard. The text is a call to all, a call to hear what is spoken. An acknowledgement that what is coming is wisdom and understanding. Proverbial nature, isn't it? And even in Proverbs fashion, it's necessary in order to grasp the riddle, the dark saying, noted in verse four. In fact, when we go back to the beginning of of, of Proverbs, in Proverbs chapter one, where it lays out the purpose of the Proverbs, you remember that? Well, in chapter one of Proverbs, verses five and six, it says, a wise man will hear an increased learning and a man of understanding will attain wise counsel. For what purpose? To understand a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and their riddles. So it seems that these verses connect a wise man and a man of understanding as necessary components to understanding a proverb and an enigma, the words of the wise and the riddles. And since the psalm before us this morning is proverbial in nature, it's didactic, it's teaching in purpose and instructive, it comes to the listener by way of one of God's spokespersons carried along, no doubt, by the Holy Spirit. Church, there is this morning a call to hear the wisdom and understanding of these words in Psalm 49. Okay, one of the prelude note to consider. The psalmist communicated this psalm originally by means of the harp. According to verse four, see that in verse four, I will disclose my dark saying on the harp. And I've been studying this psalm all week and I've been thinking about this all week with the, the, the harp in my mind. Just how how this would have flowed, how this would have gone and. And I was trying to orchestrate it, and it just didn't work out. But I thought it would have been a lovely thing to have had Jacob read the psalm with someone playing and plucking the harp in the background this morning. It would have been a little weird. (laughs) Nevertheless, it would have been a nice effect in terms of thinking about our text this morning. We need to understand that these psalms, all of them. In fact, the word psalm, the Hebrew word psalm, it has in mind to pluck. Pluck. A pluck okay, and this helps us to understand the intent of the delivery for the Psalms. Okay, they are intended to be sung. In fact, the Psalms they served as a um, Jewish hymnal of the day, all right, Ac- accompanied with strings. These Psalms, while poetically written, were penned in large part for the corporate worship of the saints. Now, in the New Testament, there's this idea. In fact, we encountered this at the end of James last week. Is anyone cheerful? Let him what? Sing psalms. Okay. We see this in in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19. One who is filled with the Spirit. Okay. Characteristic of being filled with the Spirit is speaking to one another with what? Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And it goes on and says, making melody in your heart. Making melody. That word, those two words, making melody. In the original language, it has in mind touching or twanging the chords. I like that. Touching or twanging the chords plucking. And in particular, the New Testament idea and concept of making melody or psalmody is that psalms, these psalms are are sung to pluck and strike the heart of the believer who is filled with the Spirit. Do you get this? This is good to understand this and to know this. This is what we're talking about this morning. And so my prayer is that there will be a great deal of plucking and twanging, how you like that, of the heart. That's going on as you give ear to the song of Psalm 49. What's to gain? As you hear, I believe you will agree that wisdom and understanding awaits. Just as the Proverbs speak of the wise and the foolish. So this psalm delineates one who is wise and one who is foolish. Will you have ears to hear this morning? The central question is found in verse 5. And really, if you read the entirety of the psalm, you'll you'll come to see, just in terms of observation, verse 5 is the only verse out of the 20 that asks a question. Here's the question. Why should I fear or be afraid in the days of evil when the iniquity at my heels surrounds me? Now, you'll notice first person in verses 3, 4, and 5. My mouth, right? I will incline my ear. I will disclose my dark saying. Then, verse 5, why should I fear in the days of evil? I believe the question in verse 5 is one that the psalmist himself is asking. He's asking the question, having meditated upon the subject for quite some time, it seems. And what follows is both an encouragement to the believer, one who's deemed wise. And also a warning to the one who has embraced the world's way of living in these days of evil. One who would be characterized as foolish or beastly, as we'll come to see. Proverbs 9, verse 10, says that the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is what? Understanding. Proverbs 4, 7 through 9 says, Wisdom is the principal thing. Therefore, get wisdom. And in all you're getting, get understanding. Exalt her and she will promote you. She will bring you honor. When you embrace her, she will place on your head an ornament of grace, a crown of glory she will deliver to you. That's wisdom. Get wisdom. Get understanding. That's the cry of the proverb writer. But it's the cry also, I believe, of the psalmist. I was reminded of the hymn. What have I to dread? What have I to fear? Leaning on the everlasting arms. I have blessed peace with my Lord so near, leaning on the everlasting arms. You see, when you are leaning on the everlasting arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, there truly is nothing to fear. Amen. I mean, that's and and we'll come to see this as the as the psalmist is writing. Here he's simply asking the question. We're going to, by the end of the psalm, be able to tell in what manner he's asking this question and the conclusion that he can come to in in putting that question forward. The psalmist is putting the question out there. He's recognizing the reality of the days of evil, the iniquity that surrounds him. Anybody resonate with that? The iniquity around you? The psalmist is dealing with that same thing. You are living in what the Bible calls the last days. And these last days are are truly days of evil. Has the Lord, though, made any provision for you in these evil days? I was reminded of Galatians chapter 1, verse 4. Right at the beginning, Paul is writing. He talks about our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, our Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Listen, for the purpose here, result. "that, That he might deliver us from this present evil age. Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. What then characterizes your life today, living in this present evil age? Have you become, as Peter says in his second epistle, have you become short-sighted even to blindness? And have you forgotten that you were cleansed from your old sins? There's something in the tune of this psalm that places value on the eternal. Whatever iniquity is at the psalmist's heels surrounding him, it pales and is dimly sketched out in his mind in light of the joy set before him in the Lord. The value being observed all around the psalmist is the same prominent value yet today in the year 2014, money. Riches and all that accompany pursuit of wealth. Gaining a name for yourself. Fame. Popularity. Look at verses 6 through 9. Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For the redemption of their souls is costly. And it shall cease forever that he should continue to live eternally and not see the pit or the grave. Now the world might live by that money talks slogan. But the word of God says that there is something, listen to this. The word of God says there is something money can't buy. Did you hear that? There's something money can't. Can't buy. The Bible seems to be advocating a limitation on one of the great gods of this present age. Is it possible that there is a chink in the armor of the mighty dollar? The Bible says there's something money can't touch, something money has no effect on, something money cannot alter in any way, shape, or form. The Bible says there's something money Can't buy. What is it? Please tell me what wealth and riches cannot buy. Money cannot buy salvation. Cannot buy salvation. With your riches, you cannot purchase or redeem another man's soul. You cannot give any ransom payment to God on behalf of someone else's soul. You might be able to give and provide wonderful things to other people, but the one thing you're never going to be able to buy for them is salvation. No amount of money can change the spiritual state of another person. The richest person in the world with all of his money. If we we were to accumulate it all up here and had this big giant bag, some of you young folks would enjoy this, I'm sure. We had a big bag, and it was just all. Collect- oh, it was as big as this circle right here, just filled with coins, dollar bills. All that we could put. we could compile it all, all the way up to the ceiling. We could compile it all. Guess what? It's not going to be enough. It's not going to do it. Can't redeem a soul. See the richest person in the world with all of his money has no power, has no talk when it comes to providing everlasting life. What then are the implications of such a statement in the text? If the redemption of souls is costly, that's what the text says. Verse 8. And man is unable to buy or purchase the soul of man. Is there something there seems to, be, seems to be there's something to be said here about the value of a man's soul. Isn't the psalmist drawing attention to and this is wonderful. Even hundreds of years before the event actually took place, the psalmist seems to be drawing attention to the significance of the cross of Jesus Christ. It's hard to miss this connection in 1 Peter chapter 1, 17 through 19. If you call on the Father who without partiality judges each one's work, conduct yourselves here throughout the time of your stay here. Conduct yourselves in fear. Knowing what? Knowing that you are not redeemed with corruptible things. Things that are going to fly away. Silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers. But here's what you were redeemed with, Peter says. You were redeemed with the precious, costly blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish, without spot. There is something money cannot buy. Trusting and boasting in your riches, which is what's going on here in verse six. Can I get you everything? In fact, it fails, listen, it fails to provide you the most valued possession one could gain in this lifetime. Jesus Christ. The cost of redeeming man came through the laying down of a life, God's only son, the perfect lamb of God. And so as we work through the text, I believe that the psalmist provides for us some principles to live by. And here I see, jumping off the page, the principle of what to value. Value the cross of Christ. These hymns that we sing, there is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. Nothing can for sin atone, nothing but the blood of Jesus Redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Or the stanza that says, Now I've a hope that will surely endure after the passing of time. I have a future in heaven for sure, there in those mansions sublime. And it's because of that wonderful day when, where? At the cross I believed riches eternal. Eternal and blessings supernal coming down from all high. From his precious hand I receive. Value the cross of Christ. Look at verses 10 through 13. For he sees wise men die. Likewise the fool and the senseless person perish and leave their wealth to others. Their inner thought is that their houses will last Forever. Their dwelling places to all generations. They call their lands after their own names. Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain. He does not abide. He does not understand. He is like the beasts that perish. And this is the way of those who are foolish. Mark that. This is the way of those who are foolish. And of their posterity, those who follow along, Who approve their sayings. Say Law. This one who trusts in riches and boasts in his multitude of riches and wealth. The psalmist says that he sees both wise and foolish die. All around him, people are dying. Whether rich or poor, wise or foolish, it's been evident that everyone is dying. And you know, as you grow older. you begin to see firsthand evidence of death, don't you? Those people you grew up with in school, remember you were in the, the spring of your life, the, everything, every, you're young and the youthfulness, and now you're getting older, and maybe some of the people that you went to school with, maybe you still keep in contact with some of them, maybe you've heard through the grapevine that some of the people you went to school with and grew up with are now dead, no longer here. It's true that some live longer than others, but it is also true that death is a reality. Many of you have parents here in this church family that are aging. Parents that are getting older. Death is a reality to many of you. You've lost loved ones. You've seen it firsthand. I want you to notice The fool and the senseless person in the text. When they die, verse 10, if you look at verse 10, when they die, it says they leave their wealth to others. It doesn't go with them when they die. They've lived all their lives as though this was the key to everything and all they built their life upon. Guess what? The stuff no longer has access to the grave. Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, reminds us of the absurdity of seeing a U haul attached to a hearse. Think about it. You don't see it, do you? Can't take it with you. All the treasures and abundance of wealth are left behind when death comes. Their houses are not going to last forever. Their dwelling places will not remain throughout all generations. Stamping your name on a house doesn't do it either. Today, this seems to be a big thing, you know, to make sure my name gets put on some building. You know, it's not just some building. Now, every building has to have a name. The name has to be somebody's name, doesn't it? Why is that? Does it have anything to do with this? Are we foolish enough to think that for just a moment that I can pay a certain amount of money to put my name on a building and that is going to endure for a lifetime? That that's what it's all about? Psalmist has got some good wisdom here for us to listen to. Those who are rich and boast of their wealth leave nothing, listen, they leave nothing essentially but a money God to pass on to the next generation. I believe the psalmist would want you to hear, in light of the certainty of death, what is of value? What is of value in terms of what gets left behind? When you consider the next generation, what is it that you desire to leave them? Wealth cannot preserve your name, nor is it something that you should value even, according to the psalmist. Is it important? Yes, it's important. There's a need for it. But placing top shelf value and priority on it, I believe that's what the psalmist is addressing here. Verse 12 Nevertheless, man, though in honor, does not remain, does not abide, does not understand. He's like the beasts that perish. You know, you might be in a position of honor here. You might have a lot of letters after your name, might have a well rounded portfolio. But your position of honor comes to an end when death arrives. The, this one who pursued wealth and riches ends up perishing like the beasts of the field. The psalmist in verse 13 says that this is the way of those who are foolish. And of their posterity, who approve of their saying. Those who follow after them. Listen, those who are approving, perhaps in order and this speaks to motivation. Those who are approving this foolish person, perhaps in order that they themselves might get some of those riches. I believe there's a proverb that speaks to that. It's something to the effect of the poor person, you know, he doesn't necessarily have friends readily available. But the rich person, oh, everybody wants to be around that person. Motive check. Notice that there is a salah at the end of verse 13. Appropriate place, I believe, for a salah, a pause, think about moment. What is there to think about here? How about death? What else? I think it's important that we think about what we're leaving behind. What kind of heritage are you leaving for the next generation? We talk a lot lot about the next generation and leading in the next generation. The psalmist is speaking to this issue. What kind of heritage are you leaving? Are you valuing in this life the one thing money can't buy? Are you valuing, listen, are you valuing in your life the one thing money can't buy? And if so, how are you stewarding the resources God has given to you? Since money cannot go with you when death comes, are you stewarding his resources now for his glory? Are you investing in heavenly treasures, Jesus says in Sermon on the Mount? When you die, will your posterity, listen, will your posterity receive the trinkets of foolish living? Or will they embrace a heritage of godliness? So I believe really one of the big principles in this section of text is to value your spiritual heritage. Your spiritual heritage. Look at verses 14 and 15. Like sheep they are laid in the grave, death shall feed on them. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning. Notice the immediacy of that. The upright shall have dominion over them in the morning and their beauty shall be consumed in the grave far from their dwelling. But God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave for he shall receive me. Selah. There's a picture in verse 14 that I would like you to see. The literal rending of that phrase, death shall feed on them is death shall shepherd them. Death shall shepherd them. And you know, I was reminded of Jesus who identified himself as the good shepherd. His sheep follow him and his sheep hear his voice. And likewise, here, the foolish who have trusted in their riches and wealth and the posterity after them who are also approve of such folly, they will follow the voice of their shepherd, the psalmist is saying, the voice of their shepherd being death. And you know, when you think about that, it's such a different perspective, is it not, from what David writes in Psalm. If you just flip over to Psalm 23 for just a moment. Psalm 23. In Psalm 23, just, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want or lack. Can we just stop right there for a moment? That's a message in and of itself, isn't it? When the Lord is your shepherd, you will not lack. You think you're going to lack some things in this life if you don't pursue riches and wealth. The Bible says that the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not lack. Look what he does. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. See, the Lord is about restoring my soul, not making me happy. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or maybe we could put a little footnote there, even though iniquity is at my heels and it surrounds me. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he says, I will fear no evil. Do you see how the psalmist here in Psalm 49 can say, "Why, why be afraid? Why fear? I believe David here gives us a good supplement to this. Verse 15 is yet another one of those great but God statements in the scripture. And here the psalmist returns to the first person drawing a contrast between the fool and the one who was wise. Drawing a contrast between a house of cards and a sure thing. A contrast between what money cannot buy and only what God can give. And that which only God can give lasts, listen to this, it lasts forever. Forever. In the last part of verse 15, he says, for he shall receive me. On what basis will the psalmist be received, church? On what basis will you be received by God? I was reminded Romans 3, 21 through 25, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Listen to this, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus who God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. And we see those, those words there in John 1, 12. Jesus came to his own and his own received him not. But then he says, as many as received him. To them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name. Notice there's another Salah right there at the end of verse 15. Pause and think about the message of verses 14 and 15. Who is your shepherd, church? Death? Are you being led by death to the grave? Or is the Lord your shepherd? Are you consumed with tending to your soul? See, the Lord is going to do that work. Are you interested in allowing the Lord to be your shepherd to tend to your soul? Is there a desire to be received by God when death comes? Not only is money incapable of purchasing salvation, money doesn't last. I believe the wisdom of the psalmist is this in verses 14 and 15. Value what does last. Value what does last. Death cannot be manipulated. There's nothing you can do, verse 14, to beautify the grave with your wealth and riches. Think about how foolish it would be for someone who is in their grave to have a bunch of money poured into the grave with them. Not going to do a thing, is it? Think about it. The grave is is really, when we think about the grave for just a moment, it's an ugly place. It's not pretty. You can't put any cosmetics on the grave and make it look prettier. I'm reminded of John chapter 11. You remember a man named Lazarus who was dead. And Jesus is going to raise Lazarus. And you remember the concern that's brought forth. Well, he's been dead for four days, Jesus, as though Jesus didn't know that. He's been dead four days. And if, oh, if, you, if, you, if you call him out of the grave at this point, he's going to really stink. You see, there's not only a stench to death. We can also say, as the psalmist is saying here, the beauty, their beauty shall be consumed in the grave. The beauty is gone. Think about all the amounts of money people spend today on things like tanning beds. That's one small example. Things that people are trying to do to make themselves look younger, and yet the Bible says we are going to die. We are spending our days trying to make ourselves look younger, and in fact, we'll go to the extremes of getting surgeries just so some of the wrinkles will be gone. How foolish. There's nothing that's going to pretty up the grave, church. Value. What does last? Look at the remaining verses. Do not be afraid when one becomes rich, when the glory of his house is increased. For when he dies, he shall carry nothing, nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. He shall go to the generation of his fathers. They shall never see light. A man who is in honor yet does not understand is like the beasts that perish. Same word in verse five, which is fear, is used here in verse 16 for be afraid. Same word, it seems that the psalmist is drawing his listener back to the central question. And in doing so, he's also pointing the listener to the contrast just painted in verses 14 and 15, highlighting what God will do. He will redeem my soul, says the psalmist. So after reading 6 through 15, you can see why the psalmist himself has no cause for fearing the iniquity at his heels that surrounds him. The psalmist is convinced, church, listen, he is convinced of what matters in this life. And in these remaining verses, I believe he's directing his listener toward this same conclusion. Sort of like that air traffic controller, right? They're, they're, they're helping that person who's driving the plane to get them to come in the right spot. And I think the psalmist is doing that same thing with us this morning. He's convinced. And now he's directing us. Here's what needs to happen. Here's the value that needs to be placed on these things. Here are the things that matter. Because we see in 16 through 20, when he dies, he takes nothing with him. While he lives, he blesses himself. He does those things that make himself happy. You're going to continue living for man's praise, which is temporary. His resting place, the text says, is with the generation of his fathers. That's interesting. It seems that this has been a pattern. These fathers who shall never see light or the light of life. And the reality that's being painted here in these closing verses is following a path that fools lead and it goes to eternal darkness. The Bible calls this eternal torment, hell, eternal separation from God. Now, verse twenty, I hope sounds familiar. It's almost verbatim the same as verse twelve. If you notice that, sort of like in our song. Remember, this is a song, and I believe verse twelve and verse twenty would have been the chorus—a reminder. Very poignant, vivid reminder. It's the closure to the song. Listen to it. It's the closure. And you know, I liken verse 20 to the effect of, of banging. I was thinking about music and I was thinking, I don't even know what it's called. If it's some, some, some kind of symbol, It's in the percussion family. You ever seen one of those big, I just call it a gong. Boom. And you hit that thing and, and what's it do? Ooh. The sound just reverberates. I, I, was, I, was, I was hearing that as I was reading verse 20. Bong, it's the big gong. And it just has this ongoing ripple effect. And the song is leaving you thinking about your own life. One who is wise and understanding will give ear to this song and obey what it teaches one who is in honor in this life and yet does not understand God and what he requires of man, this one will perish like the beasts of the field. You know what? We have two beasts in our house. They're actually in our house. They're outside. They don't live in our house. They don't come in our house. We don't like them in our house. Beasts. Ferocious beasts. Named Esther and Timothy. And these beasts... They think about themselves all the time. They're always thinking about what am I going to have for my next meal? Where am I going to lay and go to sleep? On the front porch or on the back deck? Or somewhere out in the grass? They don't think of a whole lot else besides themselves. Beasts are like that. In the same way, the one who lives this life, trusting in his own wealth and riches, holding on to it like it's going to last forever. One day death is coming, church. It's coming. And the person will find that he's trusted in a lie. Fools, according to the text, will never see the light of life. And so I believe looking at 16 through 20, the principle to hold on to here is is to value your remaining days. You have some days. You have this day, right? Amen? We got this day. We don't know about tomorrow yet. But we have this day. Psalm 84, 10 through 12, describes the value of walking with the Lord the remainder of your days, forsaking the pursuit of wealth and riches And I want you to keep in mind that the sons of Korah were Levites. Sons of Korah wrote Psalm 49. The sons of Korah also wrote Psalm 84. And listen, they spent their days taking care of God's house. That's what they did. I want you to listen to the priority that crescendos in Psalm 84 written by these sons of Korah. For a day... Verse 10, a day in your courts is better than a thousand. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the man who trusts in you. You see, the sons of Korah made the decision to serve God as a doorkeeper rather than hang out in the tents of wickedness where they could probably earn a little higher wage. They probably could have had some more freedoms to feed the appetites of their own flesh. They chose to serve the Lord with their lives. There's one other example that I believe is important If we turn to the New Testament. We see in, in, in the book of Hebrews, chapter 11, the great faith chapter. And turn your attention to verse 24. By faith, Moses when he became of age, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. You see, how is it, church, that you choose to suffer affliction over the enjoyment of the pleasures of sin? How is it that you can esteem the reproach of Christ greater riches than all the wealth and security afforded to you in Egypt. For Moses, it was all about the reward he looked forward to by faith. And you know, money still talks today for many people. Some have gotten themselves all twisted up in knots over this mighty dollar bill. Some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Perhaps it would be helpful to carry with you in your Bible, as I have here with me, a wonderful portrait. A picture of this mighty dollar bill and it's got wings. And the wings, the dollar bill is flying toward heaven. As a reminder that it's not going to go with us. As a reminder that it cannot buy the one thing that's needed in this life. Eternal riches cannot be bought. And yet it's the very thing all inhabitants of the world need. Amen? Low, high, rich, poor, doesn't matter. If money cannot buy salvation, and salvation is needed to have everlasting life, and that everlasting life only comes by way of God's Son, who redeemed our souls at the cross of Calvary. You see, the psalmist says in verse 15, but God will redeem my soul from the power of the grave. He knew that he was going to die physically, just like everyone else around him. But he also knew something that many didn't understand. And many still today don't understand that God was going to redeem his soul from the grave. And so church, you see, we live on the other side of the cross. We are privy to what the psalmist is describing. God redeems souls only through the costly, precious blood of the spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. Oh, yes, as I look at this psalm, there is much wisdom. There is much for us to understand in what he has to say here. He's pointing you toward the one who was with God in the beginning. He's pointing you to the one who is called the pearl of great price. He's pointing you to the one who is like that treasure buried in the field. He's pointing you to the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Money talks to a lot of people today. But, church, God is talking. This morning, through his word. Tell me, when God talks, are you motivated to start obeying? Does this motivate you more than God's word? And what he has to say? Think about that. Is God's voice all the incentive you need to walk faithfully? Are you looking to your reward, longing for the day when he receives you unto himself? Value the cross of Christ. Redemption, which money cannot buy, came through the cross. Value your spiritual heritage. Death is pending. What are you going to pass along to the generations that follow? Value what does last. The wise man and the fool are both going to die. The difference is that the wise man has invested in the one thing that will last. Heavenly treasures. And value your remaining days you can steward well your remaining days and take comfort even in the midst of iniquity at your heels when the Lord Jesus Christ is the shepherd of your soul. Remember that you are a pilgrim. You are a sojourner here. Live like a citizen of heaven. So hear this, all you peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world. And I would even say and insert here, hear this, all you gathered here today at Hope in Christ Church. There are two kinds of people in the text today. One who is a fool, whose life trajectory leads to nothing better than the selfish, beastly instincts that ultimately perish. The other is deemed wise, whose life trajectory leads to the light. A redeemed soul under the care of the great shepherd of the sheep. Give ear, church. God is talking. Amen? Let's pray. Father, grant us wisdom and understanding to desire Christ above all things here on earth. You are God who speaks, and may this people practice responding when you speak, may your voice drown out other voices, any other voices that may compete for our listening ear. And may our lives reflect the fact that God talks even yet today. In this I pray in the name of the one who created us, the one who called us, the one who bought us, ransomed us, pardoned us, our great Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen.